صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we've got two staunch comrades from our unions. They've recently been to Palestine. We're going to talk to them about their Palestine tour. They went with APAN and AFIDA. We're joined by Shane Comerfield, who's the Assistant National Secretary at the RTBU, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, and Andrew Irvine, who's the Media and Research Officer at the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union. G'day, guys. How are you doing? Mighty, how are you? It's really good. Really well, really well, boys. Yeah, very good. So great to have you both on the show. Shane, I'll ask you first. How did you come to Palestine? Like most people, you know, I'm an Anglo-Australian, so most of my history about Palestine and all that was coming from my growing up through the 70s and the 80s. So I, I didn't really understand what was going on there. And um, I just seen conflict. Uh, and that's what I grew up with. I didn't really understand the background. Um Suddenly, I got asked several years ago to get a bit more involved in understanding what was going on. And then when um, I was asked to take this tour and have a look at what was going on there, it was some trepidation, you know, and I had to go home and ask my wife um, because she was the same as me. She's the same vintage as me, you know. It's an older white Australian not understanding what's going on in the Middle East. And she was worried and my daughter was worried. But I said, I have to go because I believe in standing up for people and it's something that I feel that I had to do. And I'm really proud of the fact that they understood that that was my need. But um, I went over there with open eyes, an open heart, and an open willingness to learn. And I think that's that's the key for anybody that goes over in our positions to understand what we're going over there for. It's not to make judgment. It's about learning and understanding what's going on. And that's why I went. What about yourself, Andrew? How did you come to Palestine? Yeah, well, um, for me, I knew that there'd been um, a tour uh, previously. Um, I knew a little bit about Palestinian history and the history of Israel. Uh, from school, I went to school in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and back in the day, in, in my seven form class, we did a, a series of, of investigations into um, apartheid in South Africa. And on the other side of it was Israel and the Palestinian uh, situation and the partition. And, and so it was quite a, an interesting... So I had some background information. and But then my state secretary said, hey, there's a, a tour of Palestine coming up. Do you want to go? And I, I thought he was kidding to start off with because at the time there was a lot of um, there was a lot of serious problems happening. You know, Hebron, there were different things happening around the West Bank. And then I thought because recently I've been involved with IPAN as well uh, for peace. Mm-hmm. And I thought, look, if I if I want to fight for peace, I really don't need to know what oppression um, and uh, 
disadvantage looks like firsthand. And so I wrote to my family as well. We had a, a frank discussion about what it might mean. And um, I decided, yep, if I was going to go, I wanted to go with two things in mind. I wanted to know how trade unions functioned uh, in a country that was occupied, how they bargain, how they do the basics that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also wanted to get a, um, a clearer first-hand history of uh, our understanding of what it's like for people who mm-hmm. live in an occupied country. I've always been a strong advocate for social justice. Uh, so for me, it was it was important to go over there and understand more. Shane, you guys went in through Jordan? Uh, no, mate. No, no. I, uh, Andrew and I flew in uh, directly from Dubai into Tel Aviv, um, which was an experience. Um, it's a long flight, um, and um, we we're glad that we caught up with each other finally because we both flew out of Brisbane, so it was uh, pretty good. And Andrew and I go way back, so we knew each other, and it was actually good to have a friendly face on the tour with me, and that made things a lot easier. Yeah, we flew into Tel Aviv um, with a lot of trepidation about uh, what we were doing over there because we were tourists apparently um, because um, I don't know if they wanted to actually understand who we were. My name and background being the German heritage that I have, you know, my family's, uh, my my father's side of the family's been out here since the uh, early 1900, um, well, 1903, I think they arrived here in Australia. Um, but my surname um, advocated some stuff and I got questioned um, coming in uh, a couple of times and then I got questioned going out as well of Tel Aviv Airport. So that was interesting. Being white Anglos, I think, uh, would have made it a lot easier. We we had people on our trip that have a Palestinian background and they had a lot harder time than me and Andrew did coming through the airport. And um, and I've seen some of the tactics used in the airport and it, it, it just worried me. And like I've travelled all over the world. I've, I've been to Mongolia. I've been by, um, and through some of the Asian countries at times uh, in my roles. I thought this was an experience I don't think many people would see. Andrew, Jerusalem, you walked the streets. What was that like? Yeah, we did. Well, and it's funny, isn't it? Because when we got, we got into our hotel, the Legacy Hotel, and it was very much like any, almost like a Western hotel. Uh, we sat down, there was a restaurant, you could grab a beer, uh, you went up to your, to your room, you came back down, and then we went for a bit of a walk down to the to the old city, yeah, Damascus Gate. Going through the, the Palestinian area just before the Damascus Gate, there's music and there's food and there's markets and there's a vibrancy. And then you get to the Damascus Gates and you can see firsthand and quite clearly that you're in a different phase now. On one side, there's a checkpoint with, with um, fully armed police. Uh, border police, three types of police, border police, Israeli police and the army. And on the other side of the Damascus Gate, there's this the same again. And then you walk down the steps and it's beautiful. Like it's a tourist mecca. It's a postcard place. But you know you're in a, there's something slightly different going on. And so as we walk down the uh, down the um, the steps and down onto the cobblestones, historical cobblestones, again, there's there's more, more police, three, four here, fully armed, three or four again. And you just get the knowledge that you're in an occupied territory, that you're in a in a place that's that's very different, mm. um, and that the violence is all around. And it was quite confronting. And then we went through. We wanted to find the money man, you know, to change our money and do the bits and pieces that you do. And 
and then we're into the the market again and there's people everywhere and it's it's people are doing their stuff and then we walk past this um on the left hand side as you're walking down the old city and there's like a pen a police pen it's almost like a, an obscene petting zoo and there's about eight fully armed israeli police and armed army Mm-hmm. as young people, boys and girls young. Andrew, explain to our listeners what those guys look like. This is a fully armed helmets uh, on the ready, and they've got, um, uh, they've oh, yeah, got their fully or semi-automatic, uh, and they are watching, and they are young. They're 18 to 20-year-olds uh, doing their national service, uh, but they are taught that they are the power. They're taught that they are the, you know, the, that they are there to. It, it's intimidating. One of the things that often doesn't get translated, you know, in media stories, in newspaper stories, is what occupation actually looks like. Occupation is violent. There is no benevolence to an occupation, and so whether it is eighteen-year-old quote-unquote stormtroopers, and I've seen these kids. They have got every single conceivable weapon and tear gas and batons and everything. All of it is violent. Shane, did you get a sense of? Uh, mate, the sense of the, what were we seeing? And I, I think coming through the checkpoint, coming back from Ramallah was the one that really got me where it was the second time. The first time was a young male guy got on to with his AR-15 and his sidearm, his full body armour and everything like that and walked through and checked every one of our passports and looking at us and then guards outside. But the second time we come through that checkpoint, we got checked again. But there was this young girl, she would have been 19 if she would have been a day. And she got on this bus, bus, fully armed, fully kitted out. But you seen hanging off her belt was a pair of um, earplugs with uh, polka dots on it. So did she want to be there? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Uh, She decked herself out as part of her national service. So she was doing what they have been trained to do from an early age. It is about the education of those kids to say, you've got to do this because you're doing what we expect you to do. And that's what that's what I've seen in most of those young. They were doing what was expected of them, not maybe what they thought was right, but what was expected of them. But the look in their eyes was that if we'd given them any excuse yeah, at all, absolutely. if we'd given them any excuse at all, we would have been treated with extreme violence and prejudice. So just what we've seen in the small time we were there, it just shows that this was a regime that will crush any dissent whatsoever, whether it's been their own people creating dissent and let's be honest, the own people what I'm talking about under the Israeli constitution is those Jews that are allowed to vote in everybody because everybody else is a second class citizen in this country. And people are expected to treat everybody else with that disdain. And that's what come across to me, that there is no value in anybody but what they have been taught to value. And that is wrong, and that is not humane. That is not the values that my I brought my daughter up to be. It's not the values that most Australians see. And I can guarantee it is not the most value of even the Palestinian people I met. And I've got to say, some of the Jewish people that we did meet in Israel, not all of them, some of them, I think, understand the value 
of what they're doing is wrong, but how do they change that? Because we've got this cultural problem that does not. So, and look, my my greatest fear, and this is what I, I see, and I don't know if Andrew agrees with me, we see this world process at the moment where the right wing is just driving the agenda, driving the disdain and discourse between the lower socioeconomic people of the world. And this is part of this whole process because if you're not strong enough, under their opinion, you don't deserve enough. And that is the problem with what's going on in society as a general. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I see the sad situation of what I've witnessed over there. And like, we're only there for a short time. What I witnessed was a degrading of human dignity and the human experience of non-Jewish Israelis and the Palestinian people in the occupied territories. Andrew, that was a pretty harrowing description of circumstances there. Why don't you take us through what you saw workers' rights, how Palestinians are treated? You know, you were over there as a union person, wanted to see how unionism works in Palestine. What was your experience? It was interesting. We went and saw uh, unions who were uh, associated with the PLO, uh, the Palestinian Authority, where wages is low, and they spoke to us about uh, how they needed international support. They spoke to us about um, the uh, some of the biggest issues for them were workers' permits that were done through permit brokers. So to work, because you know, wages are so low in Palestine, many workers required to go and work in settlements in Israel or in uh, Israeli-controlled, uh, what do they call them, uh, workers' depots kind of thing. Uh, which are in the illegal settlements, uh, but Palestinians go and work there through a broker system, which takes almost a quarter of their of their wages uh, and is open to massive corruption. How are their wages with Israeli wages? So they were probably still a third, a third higher, a third to to two thirds higher than the Palestinian. The Palestinian wages are around about eight or eighteen, eighteen, I think it was, uh, and the average Israeli wage is about five thousand shekels a month. So taking uh, you know 1250 off that, it's still double, almost double what that system is a worker, a Palestinian worker would go and be essentially bought by an employer. They didn't know what job they were going to do. They were transported, then they could be taken anywhere. And it was open also to massive abuse, right? Uh, so females, we had stories, harrowing stories from um, the general union of Palestinian uh, trade unions who would talk to us about um, women going in there been told, right, you're going here, ending up in a really unsafe environment in Israel, in the settlements, with very limited rights, very limited opportunities to actually stand up and, and fight, but they need the money. So they're in that, almost the enslaved, um, just absurd, um, but really harrowing and really sad. And so many people were required to do it because unemployment in many of the, the West Bank areas around 25 to 40%. So it's huge. So the issues around that were really problematic. Although, having said that, there were some people doing massive work. Man, a union based in Israel, but fighting for Palestinian workers, gave us some really good hope stories around standing up and fighting. And there was a, a delegate on site in one of in Atzerot, I think it was the one of the um, Israeli settlement working areas. Working, but they organised their workplace and were able to get a, a collective agreement that we talk about here. Took a long time. The Israeli authorities and the company harassed 
the um, the delegate to the point where he was off work for three years on in administrative arrest, essentially home arrest, couldn't work, was under surveillance, all of those things. But they stood strong and they got a collective agreement. They got back pay. He got his job back. So there were good stories. These are people who lived in the West Bank working in Israeli organisations. They were working in um, Israeli settlements that had industrial zones. What I found was is the struggle in my own mind is that the Palestinian authorities, the view of the world is so tough to understand. And you know, and this is economic bastardry as the best boss name. The Palestinian Authority says to work in a illegal settlement or in an industrial zone of an illegal settlement is illegal, basically, within by the PA unions, can't organise in there because they feel they don't. Mm -hmm. And then we had history. The Israeli union says, well, we don't, if we organise workers in there, we're actually acknowledging that the settlements are there, but we're not supposed to do that. So they have this disconnect that workers are stuck in the middle and when we see the likes of men stepping up and say, look, we're about workers' rights. It doesn't matter whether it's the Palestinian law or Israeli laws. And that's what they were fighting for. And I take my hat off to those people because they were just standing up for workers, which we all want to do and we will always continue to. But it's it's mind-blowing. And look, I've got to be frank. It was such a difficult mindset to us to understand why people just couldn't just band together. But if you've been occupied territory, and let's let, let's be honest, this has been going on since the 40s, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. The Zionist agenda has been coming through and through and through. Let's not unpick this too bad. This is a territory that has been colonised by European uh, Jews within the last hundred years, and that's what it's. It's it's a, a colonial takeover of the worst sorts. It is exploiting workers, exploiting people, not on racial grounds, but on religious grounds. Because there's a lot of, and I'll say, Palestinian Arabs in inside the state of Israel that either Christians or whatever other religious backgrounds, they get treated the same as whether they're Islamic or any other. It's about their religious beliefs, not about their ethnicity. And that's that's the the takeaway they've got. It It wasn't about anything but religion. And that helps the Western narrative and that's what i that's what i grew up with about the narrative it was about the islamic community against the jewish community and how poor all this sort of stuff but it's not about that this this is about everybody but the zionists and i've got to say there's a lot of jews in there in i understand from their the different um, strands of their religion that don't agree with what the Zionists are doing within the state of Israel as well. The participation rates in their electoral processes over there, those people don't participate in that either. So, and I've got to say, thank God I had a few union guys there with me because every evening we'd come home and we were just about to explode because we had to bite our tongue. Like, you might hear me talking, and I'm not one of those blokes that can bite my tongue very well, but... I promised my wife, and that was that was one of the things that the guys all said, you've been really calm about this. I said, well, I make a promise. I don't make promises very often, but when my wife asked me to make a promise that said I would not 
go overboard in any of the conversations. And I know Andrew could see him and I was ready to explode sometimes. One of the realities of guys like yourselves, Andrew, Shane, is your union through and through. You've spent your entire lives, careers fighting for workers' rights to go to a system of ultimate bastardry. I mean, we know that employers will exploit employees. Just this week, we saw a, a boss at the National Property uh, Conference Financial Review saying, you know, there's a problem with our unemployment rate. Unemployment's too low. We need unemployment to go up at least 50%. That's what happens in the West. That's what's happening here in Australia. But if you get to a situation with an occupied people being exploited, almost as you were saying before, Andrew, you know, you don't want to use that word, but almost indentured slaves, paying brokers, getting 40% of the income. One of the things that, that also struck me, and it was um, so different, because one of the things when I, when I talked about I wanted to learn how bargaining and, and different things occur. And it still happens. But when we were talking to uh, to some of the unions and we talked to the electricity union, the majority of their work is going in and repairing infrastructure that's been demolished when raids have happened in uh, communities, when raids have happened in refugee camps. There were photos when they went into Hebron and had to put the power back on after the Israelis had gone in and totally decimated the town, the township. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. that's happening every night, eight eight raids a night into into communities, uh, and so it's not an it's not a uh, an advancement. It's a protection. It's going in and redoing what what should be there as a right. Uh, they have to go in and re redo it every time. And the other thing was when mm-hmm. we were talking to people in the transport industry and in the farming industries, uh, the unions that represented them. As many people die uh, from being shot, uh, either on the way to work or during their work in the farming industry, who d- the die of workplace accidents. Uh, and in in areas that's that's a statistic that you look at and go, Jesus! Every year we sit here and we talk about International Workers Memorial Day. These people are on their way to work or at work and are being killed um, by by the the and will occupy yeah, force. by the occupy occupying forces and that struck me and I still remember that and going back I just want to take a little step backwards uh, because we did another tour on the last day of our tour through the and we went up to the old city again early in the morning about seven or eight o'clock in the morning and we went to the uh, Temple Mount we did the walk around we did the mm-hmm. tour. Part. And on the way back down, we were kind of buzzing because we'd seen this fantastic architecture. We'd taken some photos of doing all of the things. And as we walked down into what I think was the old weaving area, um, and so you go down and you go into what used to be a, a weaver's uh, spot, one of our comrades took a photo of uh, an Israeli soldier. There was an Israeli soldier on one side of the door and an Israeli soldier on the other side of the door. And this time the weapon was trained directly at us as we walked through. So you can't unsee that as somebody. You know, we go to places where weapons are slung over the shoulder. We go to places when you're talking about the architecture of occupation, it's about fear, it's about uh, creating and identifying ways to make people fearful um, and under siege. And that's what we saw. Uh, and the other one was when we uh, at that we had a checkpoint in Calandia, where I think it was checkpoint in Calandia, I think it was, where on one side yeah. of the road there was a um, 
Palestinian uh, gentleman being escorted by three or four police out of his car, back up a kilometre, two kilometres of cars. Car was just left in the middle of the road. He's frog marched off to wherever, to the military court. And on the other side of the road, there's a settler, uh, a colonialist with a, uh, a semi-automatic slung across the back of his shoulder. We're sitting there in a, in a bus uh, that is being uh, <laughs> going to be checked, and this guy is walking with impunity on the other side of the road. Uh, who's the terrorist? And the only differentiator. Who's the, ter- the who's only the differentiator. Here? Yeah. yeah. And the only differentiator and the treatment at that checkpoint is when you celebrate God. There's a word for that, Shane. <laughs> there is, mate. There is. Starts there with is. a capital A apartheid. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it is. It, it was. It, it, that's what it but, was. We but it, it, and we saw that with the, it, the wall as well. W- the most w- grotesque thing that you ever see is the wall. Um, it is splits yeah, communities, splits everybody, uh, and is just an affront to dignity with the pillboxes on the top and the snipers and all the rest of it that you that just is a an apartheid wall. Mm-hmm. And, and you and you look at you you look at some of the way it's built mm-hmm. and the way it's maintained and you and, and you, you just think like the road to Jericho like just slap in the middle of it so it stopped the trade into the Palestinian areas and just destroyed that whole community by doing yeah. it. Mm-hmm. But what got me and I'll, I'll say this: we're talking about an area. The whole of Israel and Palestine is one-third the size of Tasmania, right? And that's that's what blew my mind. Like, I live in um, – I live and work in Brisbane, as does Andrew. But from my home to drive from Jerusalem into Ramallah is like me driving two suburbs, and 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 the change, just driving that from the opulence of what we've seen in the Jewish sectors of the new parts of Jerusalem, through the broken down old uh, Jordanian airport, through those checkpoints going all that way, past all those industrial zones leading up to the checkpoints, then into the go through that checkpoint and then you see the the no-go zone area for the Palestinian Authority uh, police and all that where nobody really has control. And then you get into this opulence of Ramallah and and then you just see the change, the change. But when you see the opulence of Ramallah and compare it to the opulence we've seen in the Jewish sections of of, uh, Jerusalem, it's still chalk and cheese. We still have the plastic tanks that can be shot through because the soldiers don't like the idea of the Palestinians having water and only let them have so much water and they've got to stop. But they can't have proper water tanks on top of their buildings. They've got to have these plastic ones so the soldiers going past can just take pot shots. So it leaks the water out. And that's what got yeah. me. It's the water security, how they treat the natural resources and how they limit them to the people who are going to use them for growing crops, for growing food, or just basic hygiene. So, look, let's make no mistakes about it. This, This, to me, showed that they 
now in a situation where the Palestinian people are a fight for their life. They're a fight for their future. And with the government they've got in place in Israel at the moment, they've made it very clear with those right-wing, settler-friendly, what's names, they have made it very clear that they do not see the Palestinians as being anything but a slave class to their industrial might and their growth of their country. They don't care. But what, what gets me is we see Australian Jewish communities going over there and building illegal yeah, settlements. Well, yeah. And Australian companies importing Israeli stone benches. But it's it's yeah. not out of Israeli side of the of the of the border if we take that. It's from illegal yeah. settlement projects. They're the sort of things that Australians don't yeah. see or probably don't want to know. We'll we'll have a we'll jump up and down about whether it's a sweatshop in Asia that produces your jeans, but we won't talk about oh this beautiful is uh, Mediterranean stone that kitchen top we've got here that's just cost me an arm and a leg that a Palestinian worker is probably getting getting all the dust in the world thrown on where we've got a big issue in Australia about this sort of stuff but we won't talk about that stuff because we don't want to know and I think that's that's what come to my my realization I probably was one of those people oh, I don't see it I don't know and I know well now I've seen it well I can't shut up about it it is wrong it is wrong. Workers, it doesn't matter where they, where, wherever they are, it's wrong. And you do not exploit workers. And countries and governments that sit, oh, it's too hard. Well, it ain't too hard for the union movement. It's either right or it's wrong. Workers stand together, united we stand, divided we fall. And united, the workers can't be defeated. But unfortunately, have you got more guns, more tanks, and more control over water or electricity, what do you do? I can't believe that a 16-year-old child growing up in Gaza has lived on six hours of power a day supplied by the Israeli electricity system. What does that say about human existence? And what does it say about us that we allow it, Shane? Andrew, give us a good story. The thing that struck me as well with the military courts, right? So we got off at, at the, the military court in Israel. I think it was in the Israeli part. And what struck me was the smell. You knew that this was a disgusting, inhumane system. But the smell as we got off the bus, and we got told, don't use the toilets, the toilets, they, they overflow with shit. The smell was disgusting. We got in there. We went through three or four different types of, of, um, of things to get through. And it was like a cattle, like a cattle yard. As you go through, we came to there. We met some absolutely amazing women and men uh, who told us their stories. And one mother's story stuck with me. She told us of the trauma of, of having her son, who was hearing impaired, up on the dock. And he was facing um, charges of attempting to throw stones or throwing stones. He'd been, his case had been adjourned twice. He'd been held in custody twice. She was there for the third time. She travelled some way on the taxis that came through from, um, through into Ramallah and different areas and, and she came through. 
But what occurred when she spoke to us about it, she talked about the trauma of having four of her children all around 17. She said as soon as they get to 17, they get arrested. She's got a 15-year-old. She's terrified. She talked about how her son was arrested. The, the, the army came in, about 12 of them, and at the, head, the, in the depth of night, uh, knocked on the door, shouted abuse, all the rest of it. Took the kid, uh, the 17-year-old son, or I think he was about 20, this fellow, put him in a darkened room, isolated him from his family, and then took him off and put him in the, in the van. Her daughter was crying. The whole family were in tears. Trauma was real. She spoke to us about that, and she said that now she sits, she sleeps with one eye open, and she sleeps with a change of clothes under a bed, under a pillow to keep them modesty, because they don't even give them time to provide their modesty. And then they go off to military court, where a day in court turns out to be a life of trauma for not only the person who's been charged, but for the family and the community that they live in. And so the military court system, the final piece of the apartheid system, the final piece of the oppression, you don't get any. There's no rights. 99% of people plead guilty because it's easier to plead guilty than go through the system. Now that's going to tell you there's something wrong. 99% conviction rate got to tell you something. Yeah. Exactly. The positive story was Man, uh, again, and it was a, a story of a group of women who got together to grow uh, vine leaves uh, and other crops in, the, in a community called Deir al-Sudan, a village not far from Ramallah, receives a feeder funding, and which we're proudly uh, contributors to in our union, as is uh, Shane, and as is the majority of the union movement. But what it showed to me was their resilience and their commitment and the beautiful nature in which they spoke but also so what they do is they got some some funding to to lease a an area in which they did all the hard work themselves set up companion planting a feeder provides them with with funding for uh, a building there's no power in the building uh, there's limited water supply uh, but what they were able to do was learn farming techniques that were suitable for their area uh, and some of that came from uh, arid lands in Australia. <clears throat> so this collective around 15 women, we met seven of them, and they spoke to us about how they had to overcome some of the, the prejudice from their own community, but they are building uh, a community, a collective, and it was a, a really uplifting story uh, that they felt that they had some control over their life. They were... They continued to believe that there was an opportunity for them to expand a little bit more to provide for their families, but also to provide for their community. And they spoke about in future, so they spoke about a future of getting more land and having uh, a, a community garden and a tea house for when tourists do the walk. There's a massive big walk through there, through that area. And they said they'd really like people to stop off and, and uh, enjoy some of their hospitality and it was through some of the funding that's come from uh, from the trade union movement and i've put a, a request into our union to provide a little bit more funding in there but it was also the collectivism of the women who took on as i say some of the prejudice of their own community of the males saying oh, what are you doing that for we'll provide we'll do that they said no we actually want to have 
some say and some ability for us to build a future for us and our children to give them the ability to learn about cropping using some of the old techniques as well as these new ones that the Australian people had turned them in. Mm-hmm. So it was a really positive story. Still with that tinge in the background, that there's a settlement not 250 metres away that they were worried about, but part of it, what they were doing was ensuring that their land was productive so that with people on it at all times, which made it less likely to be attacked. Uh, so there was that in the mind as well. Harder for the Israelis to yeah. Harder for them to take it. Absolutely, yeah. And also built up the, the pride of the local community, of the local village in what they were doing. And then that made it a little bit more collective in their, their responses. I just thought the way the women spoke and the joy on their faces when we showed yeah. we appreciated what they were doing and the sheer bloody mindedness of them to say, this is a macho, and it was said, because th- let's be honest, th- there's a macho type image, uh, and that's what they said they had to fight. They had to fight the misogyny within their own community to develop what they wanted, and they were standing up. So they gave me an example of what it is to fight. And, like, we've got our um, women's forum coming up, and I want to take their story to them because I'm hoping that our our women delegates, our women activists will get behind these women and support them in their future endeavours. And that's that's what we can do. And it's only a small thing. And I'll, I'll be very clear about it. It's only a small thing. But it's every bit of aid and contact we can have with these people to make their lives even that little bit better is something that will will encourage their own children to progress and to um, participate in society. And that's 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 what we can pray for. There was a word used by Yazan, who was our tour guide in the Al Quds grassroots, and he said, we're not going anywhere. And he said, Samud, steadfastness, was a really important word for him. Shane, Andrew, so great for you to be on the show. Listeners, we've been joined by Shane Comerfield, Assistant National Secretary at the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, as well as Andrew Irvine, Media and Research Officer at Electrical Trade Union. Both of these gentlemen went along on the AFIDA APAN tour to Palestine. A lot of those projects they saw were funded by AFIDA, particularly the women's projects. So if you're a union person, make sure you reach out to your AFIDA delegate and just know where your money's going. And if you get a chance to reach out and perhaps get Shane or Andrew along to one of your um, meetings or do a presentation via Zoom, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. So... Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you, Nessa. Thanks, Nessa. Look, I want to thank the Palestinian oh, people yeah. that we met in um, Palestine. I felt safer in Palestine than I did in Israel, and that's being the honest truth. Um, and I felt um, and I felt welcomed by the Palestinian people that I met. Yeah, I thought it was a, a really, a truly amazing experience. Very confronting, um, but the little pieces of culture that we learned. Uh, and from the women who shared, broke bread with us, shared their, their lunch with us. So much thanks. It was just a, a humbling experience to to be there and confronting. But we will share those stories and we'll continue to to share their voices and ensure that they're heard. Fantastic. Um, and, you know, whatever we can do. Brilliant. Thank you both, guys. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.